For about uh, 20 years, Tom Clancy created a not insignificant cottage industry of techno spy thrillers with uh, more than, get this, 100 million copies of his novels currently in print. A number of these books made their way into uh, major motion pictures, as they say, top-grossing films with titles like The Hunt for Red October and Patriot Games and Clear in Present Danger and The Sum of All Fears. This latter one, tracking the arrival into the port of Baltimore and eventual explosion of a nuclear device designed to catastrophically destabilize the detente between U.S. and Russia. Clancy's worldview was nurtured through the Cold War, but his storylines kept pace with evolving conditions after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and, and he had a masterful knack for exploiting national anxieties, which took on new life post-9-11. Though he died in 2013, his narratives have stayed popular as evidenced by their frequent reappearance on premium channel television. I noticed just recently all of those titles were coming up on one of the channels. Probably the majority of you have seen at least one of these films, and they have featured um, some of our culture's most popular male leads. They play the role of Clancy's now uh, iconic hero, Jack Ryan. There's been uh, Alec Baldwin and Harrison Ford and Ben Affleck and Chris Pine. They've all taken a turn at playing the unassuming CIA analyst with an interesting history as a Marine holding a PhD in economics. Underscoring the enduring popularity of this character, Amazon Prime has just released eight episodes, an eight-episode update that they've entitled Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, now starring John Krasinski in the title role. Those of you under the age of 45 will remember Krasinski becoming famous as a result of the Office series. Well, the reviews have been interesting covering the political gamut from left to right and several exploring the personality traits of the protagonist. Some find Ryan, you know, just too self-righteous, and he is routinely touted as a Boy Scout, often in less than flattering terms. Of course, Clancy builds that critique into his narratives. And truthfully, there's a lot that could be useful as fodder for assessing many current political and current flashpoints. The Vanity Fair Review said, Jack Ryan is an astonishing case study in toxic narratives. I watched it twice, slack-jawed in amazement. I do not know if this is an endorsement or not. Although she was clearly, clearly highly engaged and energized as she rips its assumptions apart. And, you know, I get that, but like that reviewer, I have now seen the series entirely, and I was struck by something in particular. Jack Ryan is a very decent guy. He's a man of integrity. 
You could disagree with his politics, I suppose. But he speaks the truth, holds others accountable to the truth, and valiantly tries to do the right thing as he understands it. As he says more than once, he wants to make a difference from inside the belly of the beast. On NPR, Eric Degen said that Jack Ryan is the perfect public servant, smart enough to solve everything from the drug war to international terrorism without compromising his ideals. And then he concludes, at a time when so many government officials are mired with gaffes, scandals, and corruption, it feels good to see a government employee dedicated to making the right decisions for the right reasons. And honestly, I had that same response when Melissa asked me to binge watch the season last week. Sure, there are lots of things to analyze about the presumptions and prescriptions embedded in the plot, but I guess it's the timing. It's the timing. How refreshing to actually have a character with personal integrity. How unusual. Our news is jam-packed with corruptions of every sort. One political operative after another indicted and found guilty. There's pervasive disregard of truth, the clerical sex abuse of children, and the mounting number of narcissists toppled by the Me Too moment. As I've mentioned last week, I, I don't know that our time is more corrupt than others, but it certainly seems as though we are inundated with a relentless cascade of public and private disclosures of personal and systemic corruptions. It is exhausting. Are you exhausted by what's coming at you day after day after day? Doesn't it feel like a freight load of heaviness? So maybe we can be forgiven if we find relief in a character who tries to do the right thing. And you know, even saying this out loud here with you sounds a bit jarring given current conditions. Are you like me in this? Do you feel the bereft of mentors in the public realm who model a different way of organizing a set of life commitments? The passage from Proverbs announced, wisdom cries out in the street, in the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. How quaint this appeal to wisdom sounds in our moment. I note the writer insists wisdom speaks right in the midst of the busiest intersection of the city. We could think of it like the corner of Park Avenue and 60th Street. In fact, let's do that. 
Think of it like the corner of Park Avenue and 60th Street. Wisdom calling out in the heart of the city, in the heart of the world, right here. As if to say, right here among us. Call it essential, practical wisdom. The wisdom that's consistent with human flourishing. And and then, as though right on cue, right on cue to current conditions, our reading from James tells us that the tongue, our speech, reflects our character, the direction our lives have taken. Choose your words well, he argues. Don't let your words lead you to evil deeds, he says. Speech directs action. Action reflects character. Oh my, oh my, oh my, this reading is pure coincidence. Or I suppose serendipity. As we heard last week, James reveals the hypocrisy of faith that is merely professed without corresponding actions that inevitably manifest from authentic faith. He says that faith without works is dead and that religion without compassion is worthless. Now he aims a little deeper. The hypocrite who says one thing and does another is actively practicing deceit. It may be self-deception or it may be deliberate lies, but the water at the source in that case is polluted, he writes. He uses the word we translate as brackish. No matter how eloquently crafted, speech that springs from polluted water cannot be clean, says James. As Janine Sledham summarizes, speech that uplifts, that encourages, that teaches wisdom, that resonates as true, is speech that springs from a pure heart. And that is what James is ultimately aiming for. He's fuming against hypocrisy as a plea for its opposite, integrity. And so there you have the point of it today a plea for integrity from the heart of our faith. And let's be very clear here. Integrity is not perfection. None of us is perfect. None of us knows the whole truth. Each of us, myself included, suffers personal corruptions of greater or lesser degrees. That is why, friends, we often share in prayers of confession in our worship to set the record record straight, as it were. If we say these prayers with sincerity, we're properly situating ourselves before God and one another, the opposite of hypocrisy. So integrity begins with humble confession of our limitations. But from there, we seek with open hands and hearts to live lives that are consistent with our mission to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Love of this sort requires a kind of transparency or purity of intention. Now again, we don't do this perfectly, but if we earnestly seek to love well, We can't help but continue to evolve in a manner that honors God's original design specifications. 
I know this from working it in my own life. Do you ever pray, God help me to love well? You know, if you take that prayer on inside, you sense that it's quite an awesome discipline because to love well requires shedding yourself of many things that prevent you from loving well. It's a humbling exercise, a humbling process. In my Faith Matters blog this last Friday, I quoted Susan Howach, who's another author of fiction whose characters explicitly grapple with the issue of integrity. And she wrote, we die and we die and we die in this life. Not only physically, within seven years, every cell in our body is renewed, but emotionally and spiritually as change seizes us by the scruff of the neck and drags us forward into another life. We are not here simply to exist. We are here in order to become. It is the essence of the creative process. It is in the deepest nature of things. And in one sense, our becoming is a process of integrity, of growing increasingly congruent with the things that matter most of all. This doesn't happen all at once. You know this. We all know this. All along the way, we learn to slough off the bad stuff, the stuff that prevents us from loving well. We become more familiar with our limitations and weaknesses. We learn to honor what God honors, to seek justice and equity, to acknowledge the human dignity of all persons. As this evolves, we wind up embodying Jesus' instruction to take up a cross. For what will it profit, he says, to gain the whole world and forfeit your life? He is the voice of wisdom on the busy street corner, calling people to wake up and see what's most real, most vital most important for human flourishing. And it strikes me, we hear this voice not a moment too soon. <laughs>